Sometimes in life, you just need a little help. We are social animals, and that's why it's so important to spend time building a community, investing time in your platonic friendships and the family that you still talk to. Send a text to somebody who you love now and just let them know, hey, I appreciate you. I really can't stress that enough. But you can also hire some help by getting a therapist. I've seen many therapists in my life. Today, we're talking to a friend of mine, Ben Russick, the host of a podcast called Look, Just Tell Me What to Do, and who's also a therapist. Sam, how's it going? Benjamin. If you'd like. What do you prefer? I think Benjamin is, as one friend ages ago said, it's, it's sexier, but for some reason I say Ben because that's what my mother calls me. And uh, Benjamin, I think, was what people called me when my when I was a kid, and they were angry at me, like Benjamin, right? David Russick, and yeah, and that was that was a problem. So now it has some kind of negative association to it. And I think it's also, I feel like I'm putting people out by making them say more syllables. Yeah, I've never made anyone call me Samuel. That would that's, be that's my name. Yeah, it's kind of pretentious, actually. Don't you think, Samuel? There's two books in the Bible. Yeah, Samuel was a cool dude. Was he? I think so. Okay, I don't know much about him. I don't know enough. So it's always a little awkward talking to friends. Mm-hmm. I'm like J. Edgar Hoover. I have way too much information on all my friends. And so mm-hmm. when we're talking publicly, <laughs> I never know what's supposed to be out there and what isn't. The only problem would be that anything that would conflict with my career. Which uh, is? Uh, I'm, a th- I'm a marriage and family therapist. Okay. So what information about you would conflict with being a therapist? I'm not really sure. Sometimes there can be too much personal information about me out there that a patient might see and not like and like oh god he's like if we got say deeply into politics that might be a mistake <laughs> luckily this is a non-political show all right well that's yeah. we have no opinion on politics publicly that's excellent news neither do i good okay well you know how i always start mm-hmm. ben who are you i am a marriage and family therapist i live and work in san francisco I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I play a lot of chess. I do some writing. I love to cook. I live alone, and I have a background in Jungian archetypal therapy, which I inherited from my father. (laughs) And instead of getting too deep into the question, who are you, I'm just going to say flatly, I'm just these lists of things, so... What is a Jungian archetypal therapy? A Jungian archetypal therapy. So, so Carl Jung was a contemporary of Freud. He kind of came up with the idea of the collective unconscious and archetypes. So Freud was the guy who came up with the idea of, wow, dreams are cool. There's an unconscious. Oh my gosh, we're all afraid we're going to die and we all want to sleep with our mothers. That was Freud. And he was like half right. <laughs> you know, um, I'm not going to say which half, but uh, Jung expanded on a lot of his ideas, in my opinion and came up with the idea of archetypes, which are universally repeated images seen in dreams and myths. So, for instance, you'll see cross-cultural, you'll see images of dragons, pyramids, Aphrodite-type figures across all cultures. It's sort of acausal because it's like there's no... It's either, either there's one culture and they all had the same myth and it spread all over the world, which is really unlikely, or everybody's coming up with the same ideas on their own. And those ideas also appear in dreams. 
they appear in urban myths when you hear people and you hear when a movie is really well done or it's really popular or a TV show is really popular because it contains or it engenders archetypal ideas that people naturally connect with. When HBO came out with Sopranos, they were really surprised that it did well because Tony Soprano was a, a negative character, but he archetypally, he's, there's a lot of like, you know, <laughs> the Bible, there's a lot of really terrible people who do really, really well and are quite popular. It's, it fit an archetypal, it fed an archetypal urge. Does that make sense? Yeah, so the way I've understood archetypes is, like you said, things that repeat. So the prostitute, the virgin, per perfect, yeah. the innocent child, mm -hmm. king or royalty, a yeah. hero. Yeah, a yeah, yeah. And then that also gives birth to the idea of the collective the collective that there's a, that the, everyone is connected in this kind of odd way, not like not like we're ants or that we're all psychically connected, but we're, we're all sharing an experience on some totally unconscious level. And that's when he came up with the idea of the collective unconscious. So at any rate, archetypal therapy can focus on dream analysis a lot of times because dreams, the, the idea is that dreams are messages from the unconscious. And in Jung's estimation, he didn't differentiate between the concept of God and the great mystery and the self or the unconscious. So as far as he was concerned, if you had a dream, it was a message from God in a way. He didn't say that, but that's kind of the that's kind of how it translates. He he differentiated that he separated the human personality into the persona, which is the you know I'm I'm not really in a suit today, right? But if I was wearing a suit and I came in looking very official, that would be my persona. And you need a persona that works, right? And then your ego, which is your conscious self hopes and dreams and does all the things. And then the self, which is the unconscious, which is the much deeper part of yourself. So the idea is that when you have an ego wound, people tend to tend to externalize their ego wound. So let's say they were beaten up as a child or neglected. They have an ego wound, a blast, sort of a pit. And then they go out into the world and they try to fill that either with drugs or by hurting other people, or maybe by becoming, trying to become wildly famous or sleeping with a million folks or whatever it is, or becoming really wealthy. And they're trying to fill that ego wound. So it's an externalization. So in Jung, and archetypal therapy, the idea is to connect your ego to your unconscious and experience healing that way. So all the problems in the world, in my opinion, are based on ego wounds and externalizing ego wounds. Every, every maladaptive behavior that you'll ever see is because someone's trying to heal themselves. They don't know that, but they're trying to feel balanced. Someone who always puts somebody down, for instance, they, you know, those one-uppers that are everywhere, they're feeling small in the world. And so they try to make themselves feel full and large, and they're trying to heal themselves. So union archetypal therapy is essentially tapping into the unconscious as a way, as a form of healing, in my opinion. And as a result, childhood trauma, dream analysis, and just sort of insight-oriented thinking is emphasized a lot. Is a recovery group a form of therapy? Yes. Yes, for sure. Community is a huge part of, of therapy. A lot of times I'll tell patients to like, like, I'll tell them to, you know, to go find community in any form that they can. It's like, it's almost like the mind gets stagnant, you know, like in community, community helps, helps you loosen up, I think a little bit and helps you think and act and behave in healthier, better way. Yeah, for sure. So what made you interested in therapy? I imagine you have some ego wounds. This is my theory. All the best therapists mm -hmm. are really wounded and really damaged. Mm -hmm. And that's why they continue to learn. They continue to strive. Mm -hmm. I've had therapists who kind of went into it almost like an outsider, like, mm -hmm. I just, I really want to help the damaged, but they weren't themselves damaged. And it, it never touched me yeah. on a deep level. There was something missing. It's almost like in recovery, when you hear from a junkie, mm -hmm. hey, this is possible. Mm -hmm. This is what I think. There's a, a deeper gravity to it. Yeah. Yes. My old therapist, Seymour Radin, used to say that a lot of therapists are on the wrong side of the desk. 
because they're so damaged, you know, that they're so damaged. I'm going to make an, a kind of an odd reference. So in Moby Dick, I'm reading this Jungian analysis of Moby Dick, but Ahab has this wound that goes down his body from his, it's like a white line. And it's from the, his injury when he encountered the, the whale. And it never quite, it healed, but he, he healed crooked. And he also lost his leg. And so the the book by uh, this guy, Edinger, talks about how there's the, the wound. When you heal from a wound, you can either become more whole from the healing or you can just heal crook, heal fucked up, right? You just like, uh, and that's what happened to Ahab. I think it depends on on how how you dealt with your wounding. I think some some therapists are damaged in a way that they never really they never really came, they they never really became whole again from that. Let's talk a bit just about how you got to the place of being a therapist. Yeah, not just as a title, but right. as a I mean, you have you have a podcast. This is something that you're yeah really digging in. Yeah. So, I'm imagining something fuels that. Yes. I, I think it honestly started out with being, can I start with my childhood? Um, growing up, I was socially, I had no social skills, very few. And I was also a fat guy, fat kid. And when you're a fat kid and you have no social skills, it's a problem. You know, fat. I mean, at my peak when I was an adult, this was maybe 20 years ago, I was pushing 300 pounds, wow, about size yeah. 55. But I had lo- I, But as a kid, I don't. I don't know. I've seen pictures, and I'm I'm pudgy, and I'm kind of inflicted. You know, you look. I look like you know the 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 fat guy from Stand by Me. You know, like I don't know. I was just a fat kid. And in your mind, you viewed yourself as a fat. Kid? One thousand percent. Even when I lost a lot of weight, I still thought I was. So even in, in my first few years of college, I was actually quite slim, and I thought I was a fat guy. And so when women would respond to me favorably, I thought that they were just like having a bad day or something. I didn't know, like, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you being so nice to me? You must be, there must be something in the air. And that I would just dismiss social interaction as, as, as like a mistake because I thought I was, I thought I was a, a bad person. Essentially. I thought I was like, just not worth speaking to or knowing, you know, it wasn't just, it wasn't just being a fat kid. It was years of having no social skills and not fitting in. So I was still in that kind of mindset, if yeah. that makes any sense. So I had a really strong therapist who was a Jungian analyst and I worked with him from the age of 15 till about, 40, 40, 42, 43. It was, it was rough. It was just like, I had to learn how to talk to people at like the age of 35. I was still learning how to like relate to people. I didn't go, I went back to school at around 30, 32. And so I was, that was a struggle because I, I had to open my mouth and talk <laughs> to folks, but I had a lot of, I had some, I had some other skills in other areas. Like I was good at, I was giving, good at giving direction. I worked in recovery. I worked in rehab. So that was good. I worked as a chess teacher for a long time, actually. I, uh, you, we were talking about chess earlier and I worked with kids because I, it was my only skill when I was in my twenties was chess. I play, I spent my twenties playing chess, chess, chess was like, I went to the JC up in Santa Rosa and I learned I was playing chess in this cafe, and I, I think what I didn't know at the time was that the reason I loved chess so much was because I was able to talk to people. It gave me a structured environment. You're sitting down, you're playing, there are rules, and when you speak and when you don't speak, right? And there's all these, there's all these social constructs around it, which really helped me fit in. And so at uh, you know, 25, 26, I had that skill, and so I was teaching chess and realized that a lot of the kids that I worked with, it was, I was more interested in their families, and I could see their pathology of the kid come out in their game. And it was really, really, really obvious. And I thought, hey, maybe I should be paid more than 20 bucks an hour for this. And so that's, it kind of grew from there. That's one of the things I noticed during COVID. I worked with kids teaching outdoor skills. Mm-hmm. I didn't have too much experience working with kids on a long-term basis. I had done summer camps, mm-hmm. things like that. But mm-hmm. 
this I had a chance to work with kid every week for weeks on end and mm-hmm. get to really see them play out. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that most of my most disruptive kids had something where it was like, oh, this this didn't start with you. No. Like I had one one kid who just seemed to always buck the system and needed attention on him in a really negative way. Mm-hmm. And then one day he just turns to me and he goes, I hate that I never get to see my mom. Mm. And I'm like, oh, she worked late. He's like, she goes on work trips for weeks on end. Mm. And I just remember going, oh my gosh, this is you like soaking up a week's worth of attention Yeah. in five hours. Yeah. And I could be wrong. I'm not a therapist, but it just felt like, oh wow. Like it made a little bit more sense mm. of where the motivations are in a way where when you look at a fully formed adult, adult mm-hmm. acting out, mm-hmm. we don't go there. It's kind of like, hey, you're supposed to be an adult primate. Why are you such a dickhead? Right, right. Children are closer to the source. Children are closer to the source. And everything they say is true in a way. It's like they may lie, but it's true. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, Seymour used to talk about how we are directly related to our pain. And we're also, we're less compassionate towards adults because we don't, that's, that's what a th- I think a therapist, this, here's the thing. Therapist, a therapist's job is to be compassionate toward their patient and try to see the child that was shaped and, 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 and get the story of like, yeah, I never, I wish I could have seen my mom, you know, when I was, when I was seven, eight, nine years old, but she was always out on a work trip and to hear that story and know what that means and explain that to the patient and, and kind of process it. That's the therapist's job. That's what, and that's what most people won't do in their, in, in the patient's life. And, and why, why do you zone in on the childhood years rather than like your first severe Heartbreak at twelve. I do. Okay. I do. I do. Okay. Just I. I actually in recent in the last couple of years, I've put a lot more energy into recent traumas. I think that in a way, I think in, if one of the weaknesses of a lot of of therapists is that they spend too much time on childhood traumas, not looking at like what happened last year. What we you know what happened when you know you're beat up on the street or or you you know over almost overdosed and almost died. You know you're how is that affecting you now? How is that affecting your consciousness now? And I think that's really underplayed a lot personally. It's not like there's this securitist route of like oh you had this trauma and it kind of did this and it kind of did that. It's like a it's a straight line. You know that child that you know misses his mother. You know when he's forty years old and he's got. I'm just making this up. He's got, let's say, uh, abandonment issues and he gets, he has attachment issues with his, with his wife. And every time she leaves the house, he has a panic attack. I'm just making that up. You know, that's, it's a straight line, those types of things. And you see those that all the time in therapy with people, whatever, whatever, however they were shaped. I like to use the word shaped rather than trauma. I think it's a better word. It's more descriptive. Like, like a, a bonsai tree is a, is shaped by its environment. It's a perfectly functional tree, but there just wasn't as much earth. So it, and small and people are people are shaped by their environments. Yeah, but in bonsai, there's a lot of trauma. I did bonsai. Oh, you know bonsais. Oh, you have you have to you have to pull them out, up? cut the roots. Oh man, and do okay. all kinds of things. Well, okay. Another analogy would be say a tree on a windswept hillside that's sort of like this. You know, it's it's functional, but even even the trauma that it incurs, it's being it's it's fully functional. Is the point yeah. is that whatever whatever shape you're you're put in. You are still fully, even a sociopath is fully functional in a, in, a, in a weird way, even though they're kind of, they're completely hollow and, and evil. There's like a evil. There's a sociopaths. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I would argue they're that. They're not inherently evil. Uh, well, that's a whole other conversation. What is evil? And I guess uh, I wanted to qualify by, I didn't want to sound like I was being sympathetic towards sociopaths, but their, their, their motivations are, are very limited. So they come across as evil. Sharks aren't evil. 
Well, sharks aren't people. No, but I, okay. So I, I have a friend who I think is, if there's a spectrum mm-hmm. of sociopathy, I think he's in the interesting zone. Sure, yeah. But that doesn't mean he's evil. What I'm saying, if someone's a full-on sociopath yeah. who's like bombing government buildings and okay, murdering okay. people, that's a sociopath. Those are evil actions. Yes. I guess that's what I'm talking about. Let, let, let us say that someone who's very far out on the spectrum of sociopathy will probably commit evil acts and not know it. Yeah. Let's say that. Let's say they're not inherently evil, but they do things that are evil. Is that fair? Yeah. I didn't mean to get sidetracked. But that's an interesting conversation. You should have a psychiatrist on here to talk about sociopaths. Why a psychiatrist? I, it's super specialized. Oh, okay. I, or, so, or a psychologist. It's super specialized little, little zone. It's, it's really interesting stuff. As you were becoming a therapist, mm-hmm. did you start working with kids again? Is that always? I started working with, I started working in the field of addiction recovery quite by accident. I really enjoy working with, with teenagers. It's a hard field to break into and I'm slowly, slowly getting into that now actually, but I would love to work with, with younger people for sure. Because I I feel like they're, I I just, I just remember being that age and, and like no one listened to me and no one was listening to anyone else really. It was just like, you were just sort of you were, it was like you were just ignored, sort of, you know, you weren't taken seriously. And I, I like taking kids seriously. I like listening to what they have to say. Can we talk a bit about your growing up as a fat kid and mm-hmm. then a fat young adult? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you now. You're an athlete. Thank you. Now. You're a black belt. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah. Visually an athlete. Are you still a fat kid in your mind? Yeah. Yeah. I'm still a very skinny, frail kid in my mind because mm-hmm. that's how I grew up. Mm-hmm. And so I can be the same height as everybody. Mm-hmm. I can be an athletic build, but for some reason I can, I'll stand in front, in front of somebody who's like five ten, yeah, a couple inches shorter than me mm-hmm. and about the same body type. And they tower over me in the space they fill in my mind. Mm-hmm. They're so much bigger and stronger than I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sometimes difficult because your own insecurities come out. There's this thing in therapy called countertransference, which is the, when the therapist has a reaction to the patient. So if, for instance, if I had a, a young fat child in my practice, that would might be difficult. And he comes in there and he's, you know, real upset because, you know, he's someone he got teased in the playground that day. That might be a difficult session for me. That might be a harder session for me than the kid because right. I'm seeing myself and I've got to watch my, watch how I react. You know, I've got to not get angry. I've got to not like, you know, resist the urge to, you know, tell the parents to call up the principal and <laughs> excoriate the, 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 the kids at the school. So part of me knows it would be difficult working with children if I was doing it full time. And I think one of the reasons I liked working with addiction is because it was further away from my experience. It was connected in the sense that I've, I have an, basically a an binge eating disorder, but it's not, it's not the same as a heroin addiction, but it's close enough, if that makes any sense. It's almost like addiction was, was close enough and far away enough for me to, to understand like cravings, understand kind of the inner workings of someone who was addicted to substances, but not, but not be fully consumed by it in the moment when I'm speaking to them. In the absence of methamphetamine, uh-huh. food is now my thing. So it, oh, I would say the, oh. the addiction is so similar to me. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, especially when I notice when I'm really stressed out. Yeah. And, and I think this is just because there's more work to do in my own recovery. Yeah. But when I'm really stressed out, when I'm in a fight with my girlfriend or when yeah. something is out of control, yeah. I just, I binge. Yeah. You remember when I, your your birthday party? Yeah. So I had an interesting food experience. Should I tell you that story? I'd love to know. Yeah. So you're, 
God bless your girlfriend for providing donuts at a birthday. Why she would do that before the carrot cake came out, which is my favorite cake in the world, is, I mean, I know she conspired to hurt me. <laughs> I know, I know. She she knew, she researched. And there was, I was, there was this, I was going over the box of donuts and I was like, okay, I'm not going to eat like all of these donuts. And you do this thing when you have a, when you like, you take like, I'll take a little piece of the donut. I remember I was sort of hovering around it and I remember watching this person, I won't even say the gender because I don't want to call them out, hovering around the donut box. And I'm like, that person is doing the same shit I'm doing. <laughs> I could just see it like taking a piece and kind of wandering and then getting another piece and like doing that thing, which is like, just like you could, it's like a gravitational pull. That pink box is just like, it's like you can feel the atoms in your face being pulled towards this freaking box. Anyway, there was a donut in there that I guess was a bear claw. And one of my favorite things in the world is the apple fritter donut because it had all the, the gushy apple stuff in it. Too. But this goddamn donut was like full of apple stuff. It wasn't just like a few bits of it. It was like a layer of it. And I remember eating that thing. I never had anything like it. And I felt, Sam, and I'm not exaggerating, I felt as though as I was swallowing it, I felt as though it was plugging a hole in my heart. And I'm not a spiritual guy. I don't talk Spiritually about... Spiritually and physically. Yeah. I, I'm not like... I don't like talk about like, oh, it filled my heart. But this shit went into my... I could feel it like going into my chest and like like blooming. Like, like I felt whole from eating this goddamn donut. And I've never really experienced anything like that before. And then the carrot cake came out and I... That again. <laughs> I mean, carrot cake is the best cake. It's and the best And apple cake. fritter is the best pastry. But here's yeah. the thing about apple fritter is they're so big... Yeah. You never feel good afterwards. Well, no. I mean, it feels great while you're eating it. Well, this was a bear claw, so it was a little smaller. Yeah. But yeah, I, yeah, it's true. They, they make you sick. Yeah. I did not feel good after all that sugar. What, what is the role of a therapist? Like in plain English, like what is the purpose of it? Uh, the purpose of a therapist is to shepherd the patient on their own spiritual journey. It's a spiritual? Without effort. a doubt. Yeah. And the thing about the word spiritual is people get tripped up on it. Because they they have all these, they see like hippies with bells on the ends of their fingers and Hare Krishnas and what does that mean? But spiritual, the the word spirituality is is complex. But like if if somebody comes in comes in to see me and they're having a problem at work and they want to they want to advocate for themselves, but they're afraid to because they're afraid that their boss is going to fire them or ridicule them. Sitting down and processing their own um, resistance to that is a spiritual experience. It's not, I'm not using spiritual words, but the person is expressing it. Spirituality is the, is the act of, of, of connecting with and expressing the, the depths of yourself and connecting to that and bringing it forth and, and sort of mucking around in that zone. That's what spirituality is to me. And the therapist's job is to help the person connect with and shepherd them and not direct them so much, but to sort of hold, a, as they say, a safe container. It's a popular phrase in my field while the, the patient does that and undergoes that process. That's, that's their job. When you first became a therapist mm -hmm. and you had your ideas about what, how you were going to be helping people, and now that you've been doing it for a while, what are the big surprises about people and about working with people and helping them orient their lives? Everybody's the same. Let's talk about that. <laughs> they're all the same, Sam. They all, they all want the same things, and they're all disappointed about the same things. Nobody's happy with who they married. I'm not, I'm not speaking to any patient in particular, if they happen to be listening, I'm just saying people are always dissatisfied with the person that they're with on some level. Like they feel like they could have, they feel like they could have done better either with their spouse or in life, or they're always practicing. They're like struggling with practicing gratitude. They're, they're 
struggling with everyone. You know, they, I seem to, they all struggle with sleep. You know, they all have an addiction of one form or another, every single one of them. They're all externalizing some ego wound in some kind of a way. They all think that they're the only one suffering. They don't all think that, but they, they, there's this, there's this, I mean, I have, I'm guilty of that. I'm like, like, like I'm Job, I'm being tortured by God. You know, that's kind of this, this sense. They're all the same. Everybody's struggling in the same way, rich, poor, across the board. They're all struggling in the same kind of a way. I can relate to all of those things. So yeah. let, let's lay them all out. When you're assessing somebody and trying to help them right. get put together or when you're assessing yourself, what are the dimensions you're trying to get a measure of? Well, usually uh, the first thing I look at is if there's any fires in their life. Like is are things burning down? Like are they have a substance abuse issue? Is there domestic violence in their life? Are they verging on homelessness? Are they, you know, do they, is there, what, what's, what is an immediate threat? And that's the first thing I look at. So safety. Safety. Yeah. Safety. Personal relationships. Yeah. Personal relationships. I do some childhood stuff. I don't usually get into that until a lot later. No, but let's just talk about the dimensions. Oh, I mean, okay. So yeah, safety, relationships, socioeconomic status. What else? What um, role does that, does that play? How much money they have? Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge, because it's an indicator of what kind of issues they're going to, they're going to be dealing with and whether or not they can afford therapy. Also, it's, it's a, I use that to assess how much I'm going to charge them. You know, because if someone can't afford, if someone's going to pay so much for therapy that it's going to cause them anxiety, what's the point of coming in? So I'd have to adjust, I have to adjust the rate. So there's that. Whether or not they have health insurance, <laughs> you know, do they have any medical issues? And or let's say they have some back issue and they have surgery coming up and they can't afford it. You know, that's it's a really big deal. If I made more money, right. what, which one of my problems would go away? Well, none of them would go away, but they would <laughs> manifest differently. Yeah. You know, like it's almost, it's almost like. When somebody's lower on the socioeconomic ladder, economic ladder, their lives are usually more chaotic. Uh, they tend to miss appointments more because they're trying to do things like get a job, or some disaster happens, and there's like they, there's no way to use money to smooth smooth things over. So they have to go. They have to they they have to either miss work or miss the appointment. It's just like money doesn't make things better, but it makes things less chaotic. It can anyway. I noticed. So one of the ways I measure how well I'm doing is how quote unquote spiritual. I feel, and that isn't necessarily a, a theist thing. That's mm -hmm. just like, how well do I feel oriented in the world? How mm -hmm. do I feel when I wake up? Am mm -hmm. I excited for the day? Am I mm -hmm. not? When I had a decent salaried position, it was way easier for me to be happy or content okay. with my life than say, as I've been on this journey of being an artist, there's huge rewards. Getting to meet people that I appreciate mm -hmm. and getting to pick their brain and getting to grow on some dimensions. But I've also been on that poverty line since I started this, right. I'm way less predictable. Yeah. So there, there certainly is something to just having a, a stable amount of income. I don't know what, where that threshold would be. Well, I mean, they say that your, your life is great if you live 10% 10, 10 beneath your means and it's miserable if you live 10% above it. So I must be constantly 10% above. I don't know. You tell me. I like nice things. You, you saw do? my chest set. I did see your chest set. It was. It looked like it looked like it cost a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> it, it was a little cheaper than that. Little, yeah, that was, those were nice pieces. When you're trying to help somebody get... So one of my favorite, the favorite ways I've heard a disorder is if it puts your life out of order. Okay. So this was an expert of uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. It's like if I'm dealing with a total narcissist mm -hmm. who has healthy relationships, uh, meaningful career mm -hmm. and is doing well, I'm not going to call that a disorder. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to say you're, you have narcissism, mm -hmm. but it's a disorder once it starts putting your life out of order. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to order people's lives, 
what is the quickest way to do that? Because you work with a lot of people, especially in addiction, my mm -hmm. people and teenagers, they're, you can really get your life out of order really quickly because you're not necessarily working, mm -hmm. right? Especially if you're a teenager, you're not working, you might hate school, which is what you do every mm -hmm. day, and you might have way too much freedom. Mm -hmm. how, how do you try and help people order their lives from, so let's say you're trying to get to the point mm -hmm. to where you guys can have good, deep conversations, which means putting out the fires and getting them relatively stable. Mm -hmm. what, what are the stabilizing things you're first trying to help them put in place? I have to make sure they're not hurting themselves. I have to make sure that they're not hurting anyone else. You get the sense that when someone comes in and their hair is on fire, <laughs> You can kind of tell when it's out, you know, they're just, there's more of a, they're kind of more in a slow grind. A lot of times people come to me when they're in places of transition. And so a lot of times it's, it's like getting them through those transitions, like from one job to another, one relationship to another, or they're going through a divorce or they're in a, so they're, they're using a lot of substances and maybe they need to get in treatment. Sometimes I'll send them, send, make sure they go to treatment and then come back to therapy in six weeks or, or, or two months or whatever. So there's a, I guess there's a sense of, it's almost like when their lives are boring, that's when the real work starts, if that makes any sense. I think a lot of magic happens in boredom. Yeah. And we're in a world where it's a little harder to be bored. Like the, the ways of escape are endless now. I can mm -hmm. play a video game. I can watch yeah a movie and these are magical experiences in mm -hmm. some way we're so used to movies and shows and video games mm -hmm. and, and other ways that might be enjoyable mm -hmm. and the right dose mm -hmm. but can definitely become destructive if they're if you're avoiding your life because of it but they are teams of hundreds of people coming together to make a rich stimulating experience mm -hmm. and the the boredom that say comes with meditation mm -hmm. or with stillness mm -hmm. or even reading a book is where I find the greatest. Yeah. I don't know what the right word to put on it though, but the, the, the greatest moments of grace or peace yeah. is also in that itchy, awful bored place. It's a paradox sort of. Well, the mind needs to rest and the ego needs to rest because in this, in this day and age, the ego is always on the move. We got to do this. You got to do that. All these hierarchies are surrounding us. You got to win. You got to go. You got to do the thing, get the money. And uh, you need, I think you, people need, the mind needs to rest. And I think also that intu intuition has a difficult time functioning if your mind is occupied. And I think creativity and inspiration have a lot to do with intuition with things. If you, if there's too much background noise, you can't hear the little voices of, of like, you know, hey, here's this idea or here's this thing, you know. So, yeah, I think that you're absolutely correct. Stillness is important. I have a hard time with that. I do too. Yeah, I think chess is good for that. Chess is a very still, still just slows you way down, you know. Chess, drawing. Mm -hmm. You draw? I do draw. I didn't know that. Yeah, but I avoid it when, yeah, but I'm a, I'm a decent drawer. Do you draw your tattoos? Many of them, yeah. Really? Yeah. Which ones? I drew this Ouija board planchette. I drew my gang sign right here. That's your gang sign? Yeah, I made a gang. It's called Mythical Creatures. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> I think I'm the only member currently, but our gang activities include doodling and bike rides. Uh, and I'll join. The this, can I be part of your gang? Yeah, of course. Uh, all right. <laughs> That's genius. <laughs> yeah. It's a good gang to be a part of. All right, let's be part of the yeah. So what do you want to talk about? You have a show called Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. Yeah. What do you want to say? So I started this podcast uh, a couple of years ago called Look, Just Tell Me What to Do, which is about improving your mental health. It covers things like depression, anxiety, 
getting your life together, how to how to date better, how to date worse. It's it's a full of a lot of direct advice about how to behave in the world, how Th- to manage things that you wish you could say to patients, maybe. Yeah, how to manage teenagers, how to how to tell your boyfriend to go fuck himself, how to just live a better life on a day to day basis, how to sleep better, how to eat better, how to really pretty much anything you can imagine. I got I got one guy in there who talks about how to how he improved his life through playing video games. Which is just pretty cool. I do. I did a piece on on schizophrenia. I did a piece on starting your own business and the fears about entrepreneurship and fulfilling your dreams and whatnot. You can find it on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, whatever platform Google has. Pretty much any of them. It's all over the place. Wherever you listen to podcasts, it will show up. But yeah, and the quality is amazing. Can I add a piece from before? Of course. So as far as the dimensions, I totally forgot to mention like, you know, race, nationality, age, <laughs> gender, gender identification, sexual orientation. Yeah. If, if you want to plug that in. Is that identity? You just asked me what the dimensions were and I... Just, I realized I didn't really answer the question that fully. <laughs> okay. So if you're trying to get a picture of somebody's wellness, you want to know these things? Yeah. Is it how they view those things? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah, for sure. Because that informs on their their decisions and, you know, and stuff in life. Anyway, I just needed it. I just realized I'd left that out, which was <laughs> bad. <laughs> will you get in trouble? I, w- I don't know. <laughs> I would just look incompetent. <laughs> will, will the Supreme Board of Therapists come and track you down? They have actually, they, ha- they, they, they do, they have these like, you know, men in, men in orange that come for you, you know, these little guys in orange suits that they get right to your ticket. Who, who regulates therapist who's the, the board, of, board the board of behavioral sciences regulates marriage and family therapists and lcsws and a host of other licenses the board of psychology i forget the psychological board of something that reg- regulates psychologists and there's another one for psychiatrists who's better who's better yeah who's better well john Beebe, who's an amazing psychiatrist and a friend of mine told me that the the lesser the license the better the therapist <laughs> so i as an mft i'm like i'm the best obviously no, it'd be LCSW. LCSW is above MFT. They have no, more it's school. Not. They have more school. Do they? Yeah. Oh wow! I a always little, looked at them. They're like, well, they have a harder. Their road is, I believe, more rigorous. I'm probably going to get a lot of people yelling at me, but my understanding is that they have to do more hours, and it's more. It's just more academic. My understanding, humanity, is that it's <laughs> more academically rigorous. I personally find them to be a little less relatable than MFTs on the whole, but they're fine. Let's say other controversial things. Okay. Are psychiatrists drug dealers? They can be. It's sort of like you have a license. It's like I'm having just a, teasing. It's like you have a license to kill. You know, like if you can, you can, if you're a ninja, I mean, you can kill people or you can do good things. There's no ninja licensing board though. Well, there maybe there should be a ninja licensing board. There, there so maybe, we, we can, maybe we can make it part of your little gang thing. What are you hunting on your show? Like, what are you looking for for or, or trying to tell people on my show? Yeah. Uh, so my show is is about just basically mental health. So I want somebody to it's a little bit of a broad umbrella. I realize I should probably be more specific, but I can't I can't stand the idea of being a niche podcast. I think it would drive me crazy doing the same subject every week like I'm only going to do addiction, I'm only going to do eating disorders. I just think that would drive me absolutely crazy. So mental health improvement. So I'll mental health externally and internally. So externally would be like an athletic community oriented podcast, getting out there in the world, you know, or even I think that being financially responsible is a form of mental health. And then internally it's depression, anxiety, addiction, all those things. I have a riddle for you. Oh shit. It's not a riddle, but as a therapist, it's a dilemma. Mm -hmm. So I have this avoidant tendency. Uh Uh-huh. Yesterday, yeah. I, I wake up 
and I noticed that I am pulling out of the drawer the last pair of clean underwear. Yeah. And I have all day, mm-hmm. this is like a train mm-hmm. running towards, I don't know, mm-hmm. a crowd of people. Okay. I know that today, if if I don't do anything, yeah. I'm going to wake up today with no clean underwear. A train, right? That's, that's, that is, that is quite the, um, uh, expansion. <laughs> underwear to a train. Go ahead. And I'm thinking about it all day. Like, Hey, you need to do your laundry. Mm-hmm. You need to do your laundry. This is a smaller example of something that happens large scale in my life all the time. Mm-hmm. Whether it's watching a bill due date mm-hmm. come and mm-hmm. just not pay it mm-hmm. or watching the laundry pile up and not do it. Why? Why? Why I do this? Well, I mean, you had that upper limit guy on your podcast a while back. It could be an upper limit problem. Maybe you're just trying to fuck yourself over. It could be. I love gay. Yeah, he's cool. Read his book. Good. And why do people do that? I think there is a certain amount of self-destructive tendency in that. And also maybe also some oppositional stuff. Like is if you're not going to answer to an authority. Like you're not going to do the right thing. You're just going to fuck you. I'm going to, you know, maybe a little bit of, maybe there's a little bit of rebellious teenager in you still. It's hard to be a responsible adult and, and do things that we need to do. At times it feels impossible. Yeah. If you look at all the dimensions yeah. in terms of paying your bills, being financially responsible, taking care of your organic material, right? you know, which is exercise or eating healthy and mm-hmm. getting the right amount of sleep, maybe not taking in junk Mm-hmm. intellectual material, mm-hmm. like th- mm-hmm. things that hurt your psyche. If you think of all the things that need to be managed, it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think that part of it's more basic, you know, like in recovery, I think it was, uh, who wrote Running With Scissors? Augustine Burroughs. I don't know. I okay. never read it. Should I? Uh, yes, you should definitely read it. He wrote Dry also. Is he one of my people? Is he an addict? Without question. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. He wrote a book called Dry that's... F- fucking phenomenal and a psychologist or no he no he he's not he's just he's just just a dude just a dude he's amazing anyway so he said that nobody gets sober until they want sobriety more than the drug of choice i use that axiomatic statement for almost everything now (laughs) because it's so basic and i think that you don't you're not going to do your underwear until the consequences of not doing your underwear are much greater than the benefits of doing it today right because With no the, underwear. The consequence of not having underwear is not that big a deal. It's not like, you know, you're going to get like a bunch of fire ants going to crawl up your ass or anything. It doesn't, they're going to do that. You know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not that big a deal. Most of the problems that we have in our lives, most of the stupid shit that we do does not affect us that much. It, it's in an aggregate way it does over the months and years. We were talking about brushing our teeth earlier. Like you get, eventually get cavities, but it's not an immediate, you know, if I thought that I was going to get a cavity and lose my teeth tomorrow, I would be brushing my teeth way more, <laughs> more rigorously than I do. I'd be doing it three times a day instead of one or whatever. You know? I just had gum surgery. What? Yeah. Why? To like get in there and, and clean on a really deep... I have a periodontal disease. Did they do the thing where they poke the thing in the thing and they're like, oh, it's a level four or five instead of <laughs> yeah. two? Like, oh, it five, keeps going. Six. Oh, shit. Seven. Oh, wait, we three, lost it. It fell in. Three, two. <laughs> when they're counting all your... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did that. It's not good. I mean, I, I smoked meth. That's probably not good. But I also haven't been flossing or brushing enough. Yeah. And that's the first thing to go whenever I slide into kind of like more on a depressive uh-huh. mode, which I, I am. It, life comes in waves for me. Sure. You know, yeah. I, the great desire I chase 
is yeah. like a very stable existence, right? Which certain drugs can help, but mm-hmm. you know, there's a trade off with those. Mm-hmm. And I've never found that thing. The closest thing I've found is a daily program, mm-hmm. like a morning program that. That sets me up for success. Right, because the benefits are really, really obvious. A morning program, the rest of your day is awesome. Yeah, so so yeah. prayer, meditation. Yeah, all the things exor- I, exercise. I, I don't do in the morning. <laughs> I have been lately. How is it? And it's is great, it? but here's what's going to happen. They're going to drop off. Yeah. And then things are going to get bad, and then I'm going to change again. As that, that's And that goes back to the original statement. You know, you'll start seeing the consequences, and then you'll go do the thing. I wish I had a deeper answer for you. I wish you had a deeper answer. I, I think on a deeper level, it's. I, I think it's also a, a lot of a lot of folks just have. It's just. It's. It's. It's really underwear is not that important. You know, clean underwear is just. just it's not. What's important? What is meaningful in life? You know, I think a lot of the things that we eschew are are not as meaningful as the culture makes us makes them out to be. Like exercising in the morning and being in good shape and being healthy is is physically important, but is it is it deeply meaningful? No, but I think. I think it pays off across the board. Okay, but what I'm saying is I wonder if the ego perceives it as a meaningful thing. I don't think so. And that's what I'm saying. I think if it did, then more people would be in shape. Yeah. Yeah, or let's not use in shape because... Whatever, because that's a relative... Bodies are different. But let's just say more people would have stronger cardiovascular systems and stronger respiratory systems. Yeah, so I think it may be a problem of hierarchies. Where's your zone of genius? My zone of genius. Yeah. I've been thinking about that. I always wanted to make movies. <laughs> Are you a filmmaker? I uh, no, I'm not a filmmaker, but that's what I wanted to Are do. Are you a filmmaker in your heart? I don't know. Well, I was reading Gay's book and he said that a lot of times, like in the zone of genius chapter, he was talking about how people sort of speak wistfully about the thing that they never really did. And that's often where their zone of genius is. I feel like for a long time, I thought it was just being a therapist because I'm like, like, holy shit, I'm pretty good at this. I thought this is, this is what I'm, this is, this is what I excel at. This is, this is me being like, I always thought, for instance, like I was always, I'm good at like organizing things. I'm good at making systems work better. I'm a a decent writer, I guess, but I'd never felt like I really excelled like chess. Okay. Jiu-jitsu. All right. But I never felt like I really stood out as a human until I became a therapist. I was like, holy shit. Are you a good therapist? I think so. Yeah. So <laughs> I do think that. Is there any way of ranking? How do we avoid the I have truly no, bad therapist? There's I have many no, bad therapists. I have therapists. no idea. I mean, I'm, I'm arrogant enough to believe I'm a good therapist, but I think that a, a good, what's a good therapist? A good therapist is somebody who... How many of your alums have gone to Harvard? <laughs> I don't think Harvard trains therapists. What's what's the median income of all your clients? Depends on what's the like income income improvement. I mean, what's a good? Do your clients make more money, have more sex, and live more meaningful lives? Uh, some of them do. Um, some of them. Some of them. Some of them. We we try to decrease it. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, what makes a good? Th- I mean, a good therapist, I think, is somebody who knows what philosophy to employ and when. I'm really good at knowing when to tell a patient to do X, Y, and Z and be more directive. And I know, I think I'm pretty good at knowing when to shut up. And I think I'm pretty good knowing when to ask questions or which questions to ask. Direct advice Mm -hmm. isn't very popular. No. I have a wide sample of therapists. Mm -hmm. I've always been somebody who kind of bounces around, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. probably to avoid. Yeah. But I've noticed, like, I really hate timid therapists. 
Yeah. Like I hate therapists that aren't willing to say, look, this is where I'm putting my, if I was gambling yeah. on what's going to get you from here to there, yeah. this is where they're, they're fucking annoying. It's really annoying. They sit and nod and waste your time. It's, it's, I feel like they're incompetent. You know, if you're just going to sit there and nod and go, oh, mm-hmm, uh-huh, you should, you should lose your license. You know, that's a big statement. <laughs> you have to be careful because if you give the wrong advice, you can potentially wreck someone's life. So it's really important to know when to give strong advice. So hypothetically speaking, like I have told patients in the past who, who were discharging from treatment or discharging from therapy and they, had, they were struggling with addiction, right? And they were making some really bad choices. And I said to them, you have a 0% chance of staying sober. They're like, you can't say that. And I said, you have a 0% chance. I said, you will relapse based on what you told me. The end. I said, your, your family is going to be paying for your funeral within a couple of years if you keep doing this. That's the kind of time to, to be really direct with somebody when they're making really seriously bad choices. If a patient is involved in a really severe domestic violence situation at home, you know, I will give very direct advice. This is what you need to do. This is, this is the plan. When it comes to, sometimes a patient might call me up and have a quick question. I do this for my patients. I don't, they just, they call me with like, I'm thinking of going to this location and I'm worried about my job and I'm worried about COVID and da, da, da. And what, sh- what should I do? And I'll tell them, you know, I won't say, well, how do you feel? It's like, well, they want an answer and they want it now because they're about to make a decision about where they spend the next two weeks of their thing and how much money they're going to spend and what, you know, I'll do that. But when it comes to like situations like, should I, should I get divorced? Never would I say yes or no. Right. Ever. It's not ethical. And it's not even, the devil does not even know who you should marry. So it really depends. And I think my skill as a therapist is about knowing when that's right. Where does therapy work and where does therapy not work? Like I'll start. Therapy is a really bad place to find a father figure. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I have looked. <laughs> well, I kind of, it's funny you say that. I, I lucked out. My, my Seymour was definitely a father figure for me, but that was, I think, a, one, in a, one in a kajillion. Yeah, but you, you also give away a lot more of yourself. Oh. I think most therapists do. So, for instance, I, I know for a fact you have clients that don't pay anything. Right. I know for a cl- fact you have clients that pay next to nothing. Yeah. That's not really standard Across the board. I don't know what the... What's, it's not. What, okay. Yeah. I, I have been very close to the poverty line, gone to lots of therapists. You, you don't see that. Okay. That's too bad. Ever. I, ever? Almost ever. They don't... I've never once gotten it. And I've seen 30 therapists. I, I, and I've, I've been very poor for, let's say, 20 of them. That's breathtaking. I didn't know it was that... Okay. Wow. Yeah. Or like, I think there are situations where like it would be better for us to go walk and talk or this and that. I've yeah. never had these kinds of experiences that I, that I hear people like you and other people talk yeah, about. Yeah. I do all sorts of stuff with my clients. Yeah. I've, I've heard of clients taking them to a place, an object that represents something they're really afraid of. Yeah. They're like, let's look at it together. Yeah. I, I did. I made dinner with a patient you know, the other day as a kind of a ceremony thing. It was cool. Where does therapy where does work, it work? And where, where doesn't it work? <sighs> when it doesn't work, let's start there. It doesn't work when the, when the therapist's, Unconscious agenda is at play in the room. For instance, we talked about countertransference earlier, or, or the instance of countertransference when the therapist is projecting their own shit onto the patient, and they'll make decisions about how to behave in the room based on their own shit rather than what the patient needs. An example of that would be, say, the patient simply reminds them of their father, and so and they have an adverse relationship with their father, and they're gonna maybe they'll they'll, they'll maybe they don't like their patient, or when the patient starts talking about 
their own father issues, the therapist will start to kind of side against them in a kind of a way. That's one instance where it doesn't work. It's a terrible place to get relationship advice. Yeah. Like you said, there's no balls or oves on these therapists when it comes to relationships. No what? There's no guts. There's no courage yeah. when it comes to talking about relationships because it's too risky. Yeah, yeah. It's like I think I think it, it it therapy works. Yeah, when you have some when you have some courage. Like I'll have a patient like get really triggered and go ballistic on me, right? And it's my job to not react from to that and and kind of go, wow, what what is this experience? What what is this person? What is happening in the room right now? Like, did I piss this person off? But even if I did, it seems to be an outsized reaction. I think therapy works when the therapist makes has good judgment and knows that, like, oh, this is what they're looking at. And it's hard to know what you're looking at sometimes. Or it, therapy works when you are willing to admit that you don't know what you're looking at. And, like, a patient will bring a dream to me that I'll be like, can you analyze this dream? And I hear the dream, like, I have no idea what that means, man. That's you got to go to somebody else. That's a hard one. So I think the, the willingness to say I don't know is really important. The willingness to give direction when it's when it's appropriate. This is when it works. A willingness to, I think, acknowledge improvement in a patient is really is, is important. A willingness to be able to say when the therapy isn't working, when it's stagnating, is really important. Oh, what, what do you advise when therapy stagnates? You have to bring it up. Um, cool. My therapy with my therapist has stagnated. You need to bring it up and say, you know, I, I, I feel like, and speak in I statements, of course, that our work is stagnating. What are your feelings about that? And, and you talk about the dimensions of that. And I have to be careful with that one because sometimes the patient is having a totally different experience. And I can feel like the work is stagnating, but really they're making all this progress. I just didn't see it. <laughs> and that's happened before where I brought that up and they're like, what are you talking about? And they got kind of pissed off at me. But I, I often bring up the, I think it was Bowen. Those, one of those guys said the most powerful conversation a therapist can have with a patient is talking about the relationship between the patient and the therapist. And I do that fairly often. Like, how are we doing? How is this conversation working for you right now? Where are you at? Is this, is this beneficial? And I also ask them what has worked in the past because I want to know what's, what's clicking. But yeah, if something's stagnating, it's, it's imperative that the therapy either... They, I've referred people to other pa- therapists who I said, like, I've got, I've got one therapist, one, ther- one friend, Christine Pappas, who's like, she's the only living person who can tell me what to do on the planet. Seymour was one. He's dead. So now it's her. <laughs> and so, like, I'll send, I've sent patients to her. I'm like, look, I think you need to see Christine. I, she's older. She's better. She's smarter. And, you, and I think we've, we've kind of plateaued. I don't say stagnate. I use the word plateau. We've plateaued in our work. And I, and I really, th- what do you think? It's usually, you know, correct. Not always, but often. I've been thinking a lot about like what my mom would call the great palace lie. Right. And th- this is generally, and I made a piece of art on it. It, it was a hypodermic needle in a lipstick. So if you can imagine a lipstick with a plunger and a needle sticking out. Jesus Christ. And I mounted them on mirrors and it said at the bottom of the mirror, if you only blank, you could love yourself. Right. So that's a great palace lie is that if you only worked out more. Does that mean just like institutional lies about what we tell ourselves about? No, like the great archetypal lie you tell yourself. Right. And this is what a lot of this is basically how marketing works. Right. If you only had the right truck and the right outdoor gear, if you only had the right body, Uh then everything would work out. Right. Right. If you just had a good place to read, you'd read more. It's Mm -hmm. not that. You just aren't sitting down and reading. It's that you don't have a good reading nook. Right. So you need a chair and you need a side table and a lamp. Mm-hmm. I think this great lie is so central 
to a lot of our motivations. Mm -hmm. So like for me, there's this lie that one day I will be fully healed, right? One day I will be healed of all my, all the shit that I was put through and put myself through that made me heal crooked because I healed crooked. You look pretty good to me. Well, not physically, but yeah. You know, if, if you take the nine-year-old Sam and you take the nineteen-year-old Sam, mm -hmm. something went way off course. Okay. Or even the twenty-nine-year-old Sam mm -hmm. compared to the nine-year-old Sam. Mm -hmm. There was a pretty balanced individual. Mm -hmm. Pretty reasonable. Mm -hmm. I, I just took a series of knocks, mostly self-induced through mm -hmm. drugs and alcohol and mm -hmm. really adrenaline chasing. Yeah. And I ended up pretty unstable. Okay. And that's where we're at right now. Okay. Where on, in some ways I'm stable, mm -hmm. uh, but it takes a lot of work to be this stable. Okay. Like Reese, my business partner is here. He's a stabilizing agent. Yeah. I can feel it. Yeah. He it, makes me stable. <laughs> right. I, everybody needs a Reese. Yeah. If only we could mass produce him. Yeah. But the point is, is that it's, it's very easy for me to go pretty extreme okay. to a very unemployable, unproductive mm -hmm. mess. Mm -hmm. if, so the great lie is if I just drank mud water, if I just, mm -hmm. you know, that, that product, uh, I'm, I've seen it, I'm yeah. teasing it, right? If I just switch to tea, right. if I just quit these mm -hmm. nicotine tablets, right. then mm -hmm. I would be complete. Right. And your question is? There is no question attached to that. Well, I will, I will address it. Okay. <laughs> so um, Jung said, and well, Seymour told me that Jung said, I haven't actually read this. And he, Seymour lied a lot, but that's another story. Is uh, Seymour your first therapist? Yeah. Well, he, well, he, no, it was my first, but he was my best. But he, he was, he would, he would tell a lot of tall tales, you know? <laughs> and like, he would tell me stories about things that happened to him and later, like years later, I found out it was like some movie. <laughs> he was actually like, he got confused with reality. I don't know. But yeah, he was, he was a character. So Jung purportedly said that he was tired of fixing individual neurosis. The neurosis is a maladaptive outlying behavior, like, you know, nicotine patches or smoking or, or, or sex addiction, whatever. I'm more interested in, in healing the person on a holistic level, connecting the ego to the, what I was talking about earlier, connecting the ego wounds to the unconscious and, and, and finding healing and growth there. So I think that the palace lie is that we need to troubleshoot the soul. You cannot troubleshoot the soul. What I see, you asked earlier, what is progress? Progress is like when you, when somebody, when a patient grows as a person, you can't measure it, but you know it when you see it. If you ask someone, like if you ask yourself, am I more conscious than I was five years ago? Well, yeah, I guess I'm this and this, but you can't really say what the difference is, but you know it's there. And so you can see, your, your job as a therapist is you can see that growth. You can see this person awaken. It's like the eyes. What's that Greek myth of the guy with all the eyes? You know, It's like you can see the eyes open everywhere, all around them. And when that happens, you know, Seymour said that consciousness is the great elixir for all problems. It's like a panacea. Consciousness is also the, the great problem. In what sense? Okay. Consciousness is a double-edged sword. I mean, for every amount of extra awareness you have, you're also aware of all that is wrong. Okay. Well, let me get to that. Uh, yes. What, what you see when someone has growth and increased consciousness is that their neurosis tend to ameliorate. They tend to decrease. 
Like they become like addiction is not, for instance, addiction's not cured. It's outgrown. You know, like when a little, when a child stubs his toe, it's the biggest thing in the world. When an adult does it, it's the same injury, but for some reason it's not as big. It's not as impactful because the adult is bigger. The adult has more problems. They see more. There's more shit. There's a mortgage. There's a, there's a divorce pending, but they stub their toe and it's not a big, it's not as big a deal. So it's paradoxical. So I hear what you're saying. There are negatives to it. Yeah, but you generally don't see children in crippling existential dread no like you see but, do- adults but this is the, right but this is the paradox is that the, the the growth of consciousness allows for an expansion of self it's like edinger is a jungian philosopher talks about an expansion of personality that as we grow as people like that the point is to become more whole so there's this paradox of yeah stubbing your toe is not a big a deal i'm more awake and i see more and i'm more distressed because i see more suffering and i experience more suffering in the world but the the, the, the mistake that i think you're making is that you're zeroing in on the darkness and saying well because i see the darkness because that's a part of of the picture that i have because there's darkness in this painting this is not a kincaid painting you know those kincaid paintings of christmas those horrible saccharine no, I, I can't picture it. Uh, well, anyway, there's, there's this guy that he paints these, he's called the artist of light or something. He paints these really, these, these sort of hallmark paintings, right, with nothing but light in them. And what I'm saying is that, yeah, there's darkness, but at the darkness, if you look at any great work of art, it's full of darkness. Yeah, um, to be clear, I'm not in disagreement. Right. I think consciousness is the solution. Yeah. But I also think that it is also, it's a danger. consciousness is a dangerous path. It is a dangerous path, but so is being alive. Right. So I'll I'll give you some real world examples. I have a stamp. It's a serial number stamp, which means every time I stamp it, it goes up one. I have it set to the number of days I've been alive. So each morning uh-huh. in my journal, dunk big red letters. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I love the idea of thinking. You know what? I uh-huh. take decent care of myself. I think I can make eighty. I'm not smoking. I'm not doing uh-huh. this. I'm relatively uh-huh. healthy. Uh huh. I think I can make 80. Mm-hmm. I choose 80 because it's close to the average number of years mm-hmm. of a male in this country, mm-hmm. which is 77. Mm-hmm. I think I can do three years better. Okay. And it also makes 30,000 days. So I can look okay. at my life and say, today is 11,772. <laughs> of days on the planet? Of days. That's a, a mode of being conscious. Right. Right. Is to literally be aware of where you are in time and space. I which, agree. as I'm working on a book... Mm-hmm which is such a, it might never materialize. But one of the main concepts is that to be aware of where you are. Mm -hmm. We're we're sort of earthlings Mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. We're all on earth. Mm -hmm. But the earth is going to be here billions of years past us. So Mm -hmm. we're really more temporal beings. True. I am 1989 to 2050-something or whatever it is. Okay. That's... Where I live okay, is, is to a time. But at the same time, with that level of consciousness, you're, you are also dancing with the darkness yes, as well. And yes. most of the people I know who are really suffering mm-hmm. are only because they can view information really expanded. They're, they're really smart. Yes, but I think... They're okay. too smart. Okay, I'm going to challenge that a little bit. Okay. I think your concept of suffering is a little bit too reductive. In this frame. Yeah, they're suffering, but they're suffering in a way that's that's better. Consciousness is the goal. Suffering is is part of that, but the suffering is is it's almost like a pain that has more nuance to it. It has more it's like savory. If you had a palette for consciousness, it's like a more diverse palette. The suffering is more beautiful. 
I don't know how else to put it, man. It's it's like it's a more it's a more beautiful work of art. It's a larger canvas with with more blues and blacks and reds and and you know it's like look at look at Van Gogh's work. I mean, look how much darkness was in that stuff. But can you imagine? I don't think Van Gogh was well ordered in his life. No, but he he <laughs> but he had yeah, but he had imagine having that. He had a view. He was like looking through the eye of God or something. I mean, he, the, if imagine the experience of being able to to express yourself in that way must have been really, really powerful. Like he was able to achieve a level of consciousness in a particular way that I don't think any human, that very few human beings can obtain. And what I'm saying is that the goal is not to alleviate suffering in the world. I think suffering is just a part of the gig. I, I guess I don't believe in the idea of happiness. I believe in the idea of wholeness. And wholeness is a big, wonderful, terrible thing. It's about suffering and it's about being happy and it's about like, okay, like fucking T.S. Eliot. All right. So he wrote The Wasteland, which is kind of a wreck of a poem, but it's beautiful. And or Ulysses and what's the other fucking the, the Finnegan's Wake is like it makes no sense. But it, there's something beautiful about these artworks. It's like artists a lot of times are able to express this ineffable idea, which is that suffering can be beautiful, that it's part of a larger, beautiful picture. And the point the reason we're here is to become whole and to see more and suffer more and live more and live deeply and live fully. I'd say largely that's that's why I started this uh-huh. was to paint the full picture okay. and to try and get past the surface tension of our public lives, of the social media and what gets shared, but mm-hmm. to find a way to break in and share about the darkness Yes, because it's whole. But, but it is very painful. Yeah. So I've met a normal person before. Mm-hmm. Met somebody who was raised by a family who stayed together, uh-huh. who did lots of activities with him. He had an amazing head on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. He didn't have anything he could identify as childhood trauma. He didn't mm-hmm. have any major events in his life mm-hmm. that he could identify as deeply psychologically wounding, mm-hmm. you know, regular life stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was about to graduate college. And looking at him and talking to him, he was an intern for Hello Humans one summer. Mm-hmm. He had gotten qualified to be a trauma phone person. Mm-hmm. I forget what the service was called, but it was for people who needed to talk about being sexually assaulted. Oh, Jesus. And I was like, why, why, why did you do that? Were mm-hmm. you sexually assaulted? And he's like, oh, no, my friend was. And I wanted to be more helpful. And I thought this would be a cool way to show mm-hmm. how much I cared. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's when I realized how bizarre what I held in my mind as normal Mm -hmm. was to look at in the flesh. Mm -hmm. Like looking at him, I realized, oh, what what my definition of normal is is so abnormal Mm -hmm. because it was there was a strangeness to it. Mm -hmm. Well, your consciousness takes people in very funny places. And I said earlier that that you realize that everybody's the same, but also the the way they're profoundly different is that there's a paradoxically there's that that the way they organize reality in their minds is also very peculiar sometimes ben if you could hop on the phone mm-hmm. with your younger self okay the guy who thought he was chubby and mm-hmm. was scared to talk to people mm-hmm. what would you tell him what would you want him to know at that age mm-hmm. maybe not spare him from some of the suffering ahead mm-hmm. but maybe just to stick with him as he went on to become who you are today? I think I would have 
tell him that, you know, your perception of your suffering is real. It's valid and it's going to get better. And you're going to pull your, you're going to pull your life together. Eventually it's, it's not going to be easy, but you're going to do it and you have the ability to do it. When I was that age, I never really thought I was going to make it past 25. I had this weird barrier. Like I wasn't going to, for some reason, I wasn't going to make it as an adult. I've always thought that it would be really neat to be able to t- like take a picture of my life and show it to my past self. Like, look, this is your apartment. <laughs> this is your, here's your first girlfriend. Isn't she pretty? Here's your second girlfriend. She's kind of a mess, but she was still cool. I would like to tell him concretely, I think, some of the things that happened. Like, look, you got you had a black belt in jujitsu. Isn't that cool? Things like that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the How To Human podcast. I hope I have earned your support and inspired you to join our little community over at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash howtohuman or share this episode with a loved one or write us a review on iTunes, which you only have to do once and lasts forever. And don't forget to check out Ben's podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What To Do, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you so much and have a great day.